0: John chapter 16, verses 16 to 24, hear the word of the Lord. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me? Again, a little while, you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. There's, of course, a great deal of sorrow in the world, and there's nothing that causes more sorrow, either once it's happened or even just in anticipation of it happening, than death itself. Death is is the great sorrow maker we can easily get numb. We have so much information now. We can easily get numb to the numbers that are thrown around. This many died in a battle. This many died in an earthquake. This many died in a hurricane. This many died in a a school shooting. And we can get numb to this, but then it gets closer to us as this lasts I don't know if it's the last, but this recent school shooting, it was one of our sister churches, and it wasn't a friend of mine who lost his nine-year-old, but it's a friend of friends, and it's one of our sister churches, and that, that gets closer than we'd like it to be, and we start to remember that these aren't just numbers, these are, these are people. These are people with families and loved ones, and they, they leave a hole, and, and the older we get, the more friends and loved ones we lose. And then also the thoughts at 3 in the morning of the fact that, that we're mortal as well, that, that can haunt us at, and, and get us uh, sorrowing before it even happens. It's interesting that different cultures have different ways of trying to deal with this. Uh, in Mexico, they, they deal with death a lot of times through dark humor. Uh, it, it's pretty funny, but it, it, it's sort of a, a way of whistling past the graveyard by, by making jokes about death, and there are many jokes that you may be familiar with their Day of the Dead, and there's this custom of, of telling jokes about, about people before they die and, and making epithets of, of them before uh, they die to sort of roast them before it happens. In the United States, we, we try to ignore it. Uh, we, we try to stay young as long as we can and kind of just pretend it's not going to happen. Are you familiar with the villages uh, up in central Florida? The villages is an amazing place. It's a retirement city, and you can get anywhere in a golf cart without having a license. You, just, you can go in a golf cart, but there's one place you can't get in the golf cart. You have to get in the car, and that's a funeral parlor. They don't have any funeral homes connected to the villages because that would be bad form for somebody actually to, to do something like die. You're there to, to play. You're there to enjoy life, and so we try to just push it away from us. Atheistic materialism tries to pretend that death is no more meaningful than life, which means zero, that neither life nor death has any meaning. Stoics, both ancient and modern, treat death as an inevitable reality to be faced with fortitude, just like every difficulty in life. And dualists of every sort uh, treat death as a release of the soul from the body. And when I go to funerals, that's basically what I hear. I hear people saying, well, he's rested now, he's better off now, he's escaped the body, isn't this kind of a good thing? So we're all trying to come up with ways to deal with this death and the sorrow that it produces either in anticipation or after the fact. Jesus offers a completely different approach to death, completely different, both his own and ours as well, those who believe in him And and in this text, he did so in kind of a puzzling way. You see, the the disciples are listening to him, and they're trying to figure out what in the world is he talking about. And they're asking each other, what in the world does he mean? And so we're going to enter, we're dropping into the middle of a conversation, basically the last conversation before Jesus' death with his disciples. And we hear him talking about a little while and a little while, and the disciples scratching their heads. In verse 16, this is how it starts. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, this statement uh, in the history of interpretation has led to three different interpretations. Some uh, scholars think it applies to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Some think it applies to his ascension to heaven and his coming uh, in the, the person of the Holy Spirit. Others think it refers to his ascension into heaven, you will not see me. And then his return at the end of the ages, you will see me again. Uh, But what we're going to do, all these are true, but we're going to go through the text and and try to figure out what the, the reference is here. So in verse 17, they're scratching their heads. The disciples are saying to one another, what is this that he says? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And this thing about because I go to the Father... And so they were saying, verse 18, they're throwing up their hands. What does he mean by a little while? And then Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him this, verse 19, but he doesn't really answer it. He doesn't answer it directly. In verse 19, he says, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And you would expect Jesus then to say, this is what I meant. But he doesn't. He doesn't say that. In verse 20, he rather gives them an experience. He describes an experience that they will have in the future. And he says, when you have this experience, you will know what I'm talking about now. So he puts them off and he says, you will recognize it when the time comes and there won't be any doubt about it. When you have this experience, you will say, ah, now I know what he was talking about when he said that little while stuff. And what's the experience? It's in in verse 20. And he, he, he says this very solemnly. It's one of those truly, truly statements. So he's really punctuating this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So he says two statements, and they're two contrasting statements. He says, you will do this, but the world will do that. You will do this. But then you will do that. So he says, you will, first of all, you will weep and lament. So you will lament internally, you will weep externally, but the world will rejoice. Now, in the Gospel of John, usually the world refers to rebellious humanity. So that which causes the, the disciples to weep and lament will cause the, the rebellious humanity to rejoice, whatever that event is. And then he says, you will be, you will be sorrowful and but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, in the language in which the New Testament is written, there are a couple of different words that are related that are contrasting words. The word B-U-T in English, but, and it shows up here twice. It says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And that's the weaker one. And then in the second one, you will be sorrowful. And then there's the stronger, stronger contrast. But, if we could do it that way but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And so that one's the the underlined one. That's the one in bold print. That's the one in italics. It's you will be sorrowful, but you will then have your sorrow turned into joy. So he says, just just, just pocket that. Just think about that. When that experience happens, the lights will go on, and you say, now I understand what this little while stuff was. And then he gives an illustration. In the illustration, uh, some of us present can identify with this much more than others. Some of us have been witnesses of this. Some of us have been, those who are mothers and have given birth to babies will say yes. Uh, they can say that's how it is. And I've, I've confirmed this with women. I don't know from experience, but this is, this is how it goes. When a woman, verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish Or joy that a human being has been born into the world. So it's an illustration of what? It's an illustration of sorrow turning into joy. It's being replaced by and turning into joy. And notice something. Notice something. The same event causes the sorrow and the joy. But it's a question of the timing, isn't it? The the event in anticipation causes sorrow. She's sorrowful before it even happens. Because she, she knows, either by experience, because she's already had babies, or just because it's been described to her, how painful and difficult this is going to be. It's not called labor for nothing, and it's, it's, it's coming up, and it's, it, there's no way to avoid it. And it will be very, very difficult. And she's sorrowful because the hour has come, and yet the baby's born, and that very same event that caused such anguish in anticipation now is a source of joy. Now is a source of joy. And she forgets the anguish. She remembers that it happened, but she doesn't feel it anymore. It's, it's chased away. This is, this is interesting because this, this combination of, of, uh, of childbirth and resurrection shows up in the prophets. Childbirth and resurrection. And I'm, I'm giving away the story a little bit here, uh, the interpretation here. But going back to Hosea... We look at Hosea chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, and and here the prophet said the pangs of childbirth come for him, and it's talking about Israel, Ephraim, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. So there's something not going well with the childbirth here. And then, verse 14, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? And then there's some questions thrown out. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, grave, oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So there's this, this, this combination there of, of childbirth and death and, and what will happen then. Now, Jesus' application of this illustration contrasts. He's, he's applying it to, their, to the disciples, and it contrasts their current sorrow, He says, I'm going away, their current sorrow, with their anticipated future joy. But I want you to see something. He does something interesting here in verse 22. Verse 22, he says, so also you have sorrow now. Why? Because there's an event that they are anticipating and they know it will cause sorrow. He says, so you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Did you notice the switch there? Before he had said you will not see me, and then you will see me. But now what does he say? He turns it around, the perspective, and says, I will see you. He says, not, not so much that you will see me, but I will see you. When we're taking leave of someone, what do we say? And we expect to see them fairly soon. What do we say? See you later. What are we saying? We're, we're putting ourselves... At the the center there, and we're saying, I will see you later. But what are we communicating? We are communicating that that will give us joy, that we will have pleasure when we see the other person again. So Jesus is turning this around, and he's participating in this reunion here. He's saying, you will see me, and at that moment, you will have joy, but I will see you, and he's implying what else? That I will have joy when I see you again. Again, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice because I will see you, and no one will take your joy from you. No one. So he's talking about a joy that after that event, whatever that is, he says, no one can take your joy away from you. And then he begins to talk, he talks just in a few verses about, about prayer in verse 23, which might seem to be kind of a surprising thing to bring up here. He says, In that day, in what day? The day when, when they will see Jesus again and Jesus will see them again. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Now, here, uh, once again, there are a couple different words here. In that day you will question nothing of me. That might be the way to translate that. In, in that day you will question nothing of me. And if you look back in verse, uh, verse 19, it's the same word there. Jesus knew that they wanted to question him. So he's saying, in that day, you won't ask any more questions. Why? Because you'll understand what's going on. But he says, rather, in that day, you will ask requests. And it's a different word there. In that day, you will question nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you request, ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked, requested nothing in my name, request, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So you will have joy on that day. Nobody will take it away, but that joy can get bigger. That joy can be completed. And how will that joy be completed? By asking of the Father. So you will have joy. You can have joy that no one can take away, which which kind of indicates that somebody wants to do that. Somebody wants to take your joy from you. But he says no one can take it from you, but in that day you also have a mechanism, a way to ask so that your joy may be complete. It might be full. Now, it's interesting that he says that in that day, you will be able to ask in my name. You will understand in that day that whatever has happened, this you won't see me, then you'll see me, that that will be a, a, an event that will enable you to go to the Father in Jesus' name. They hadn't done that yet. They were praying to God. But, but then they, they understood that whatever it was that happened here, they would be able to base their petitions before God on that, and that they would be able to go to the Father and ask, because of what, what Jesus had done, because of that event that he was talking about, and the Father would hear them, and the Father would answer them, and the Father would fill up their joy. Now, I've tried to set this up, kind of putting ourselves in their shoes as if we didn't understand what was going on. Of course, we figured out, and, and, and we figured out, I think, in, in response to some of the scholars that have other interpretations, that the simplest interpretation of this is the, is the right interpretation. A little while meant a little while. Uh, it, was, it was a short time that Jesus was going to be taken from them. He was going to die, and they wouldn't see him any longer because he would be buried in the tomb, sealed by the rock. They wouldn't see him anymore, and they would be crestfallen. They would be heartbroken. They would be despairing because they had just invested three years of their lives in the one that, as one of them said, we thought that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. And so they were crushed they they were sorrowful they were weeping they were lamenting and then 3 days later 3 days later that sorrow that despair would be turned into joy unspeakable joy and in fact that's exactly exactly what happened the last words of the gospel of luke which is right before the gospel of john say this now jesus has died jesus has risen from the dead and we, we find that the reaction of the disciples was joy. But it was a joy that no one and nothing could take away from them. Listen to the last words of Luke. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising god now now think about that this is another you won't see me time isn't it so he said you won't see me and we now understand that that was his death and then in a little while they would see him again and he would see them and that would give them joy and now he's going away again so you would think that the pattern would be repeated right now we're not going to see him again now we're going to be cast into despair again but no it doesn't happen that way does it he he they don't see him again he, he's taken up into heaven, and what does it say? They, they return to Jerusalem with great joy. What does that indicate? That indicates that the, the, the complex of events of the death and resurrection of Christ gives a joy that cannot be taken away, even though Jesus was taken away until the end of the ages, and they would not see him again. Now, we can have a sim- similar experience Although we don't have to go through those three days of anguish wondering what's going to happen, how is this going to turn out? Because we're after the time of the childbirth, we are after the time of these events, we are after the time of Jesus dying and rising again. Now we know, without having to go through that wondering, is he really who he said he is? Is he really the one who would redeem the world? Now we know that Jesus' death conquered over sin and condemnation for those who believe in him. Now we know that Jesus' resurrection conquered death for the ones who believe in him. And so what can we have? We can have joy. We can have joy. Now, we'll experience sorrow in this life, for sure. And the the older we get, the more sorrow we're going to know. Uh, But but we're going to have a joy at the same time if we believe that Jesus died and Jesus rose again. It's the game changer. It changes everything. It changes our perspective on life. It changes our perspective on death. One, one convert to Christianity, Sheldon Van Auken, he wrote a book later uh, called A Severe Mercy. He was over in, in Britain and he was studying and he came into contact with C.S. Lewis and other Christians and he was trying to figure out why all the physicists were Christians. He kept running into these Christian physicists. And uh, this is a little bit of a side, but it, it, his, his idea was that, that the people think the scientists have it figured all out. And the scientists know that they don't have it figured all out, and they think the physicists have it figured all out. And, and then the physicists know that they don't have it all figured out, and so they're the ones who are believers. And that, that was his conclusion. I don't know if that, that holds true, but that was his experience. But he discovered something else interesting as he was investigating Christianity, he found something in Christians and in Christianity that he did not find anywhere else. And this is what he wrote in his book, A Severe Mercy. He said, the best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. Indeed, There are impressive indications that the positive quality of joy is in Christianity and possibly nowhere else. If that were certain, and he wasn't sure it was certain, but he said if that were certain, it would be proof of a very high order. He was looking for proof that Christianity was was true, and he found Christians, and he found joy in Christians. Not that Christians were spared from from grief and sorrow in this life, but he found something that could not be taken away from them, and that was joy. We'll still experience sorrow in life, but the resurrection means joy, not sorrow, has the last word. Why? Because life, not death, has the last word. It's interesting that that, that question, that, those couple questions we read from Hosea, that are, are kind of leaving things up in the air, it's not clear how these will be answered. Hosea chapter 14, uh, 13, 14, the, the prophet says, Shall I redeem them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. That's kind of ambiguous. How is this going to come out? How is this going to be answered? It's interesting that, that Paul took that up. As he was talking about the resurrection, he, he quoted or he kind of modified, but he quoted that those questions from Hosea in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, there's an enemy out there. We have a lot of enemies, but there's the last enemy. And he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then he wrote this. He wrote, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see what he did? He took the searching questions of Hosea and he turned them into a victory taunt. He, he looks at death. He looks death in the face and he trash talks death a little bit here. He, 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 he taunts death. And he says, show me what you got. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Show me what you got. Bring it on. And then he says, he could speak that way. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying? He says, yes, death is still there staring us in the face. Death is still the last enemy, but it's a conquered enemy. So it doesn't have to torment us our whole lives. So what's he saying? The last thing he writes is this. Therefore, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Steadfast in what? Steadfast in many things. Steadfast in faith. Steadfast in love. Steadfast in in hope, steadfast in service, but also steadfast in joy. Because joy has the last word, not sorrow. Because life has the last word, not death. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have the whole story. We don't have to scratch our heads and say, what did he mean? We now know what he meant. He meant he was going to die. And he meant he was going to rise again. His death would cause sorrow to his disciples. His life, his resurrection would bring them joy. And we thank you that we're on the other side of the childbirth. We're on the other side of the the life, the resurrection. And we can know that joy, go straight for the joy. We pray, O God, that you would enable all of us to believe in Jesus as the one who died, as the one who rose, the one who conquered sin and death for those who are His, and I pray, O oh God, that You would enable us, whatever we might face today, tomorrow, this next year, the rest of our lives, that You would enable us to face it steadfast, because Christ is risen; He's risen indeed, and that You would enable us to be steadfast in joy, seeking that joy from You, because while some may want to take away our joy, You, O oh Father, want to complete it, and so we pray. Complete our joy, O God, because Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen.